Hi, this is Hal Blaine, and when I'm not behind my beautiful set of drums, I'm listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. You should, too. DIY and Hal Studios presents... From Hollywood, California... Art of Rock with Caution Friends. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, let's rip off the shrink wrap and get to the show. Hello diggers, welcome to Art of Rock with Kosh and Friends, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. I am the aforementioned Kosh and I'm behind the mic at Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood. I've had a long career designing cover art, logos, posters and the like for rock and roll artists. About 2,000 album covers the last time I checked for hundreds of different artists. Put it this way, you've seen some of my work. In this podcast, which will come out once a month here on the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network, I will chat with some of my fellow artists and designers about their work in and around rock and roll. Welcome to episode three. A quick plug for the website, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Podcasts, show notes, social media links, all that sort of thing. That's where you find it. Subscribe, rate, review, and please tell a friend about rock and roll archaeology. Right. That's the business, so let's do the show. Whenever I see your smiling face, I have to smile myself because I love you. Yes, I do. And when you give me that pretty little pout, it turns me inside out. There's something about you, baby, I don't know Isn't it amazing a man like me can feel this way Tell me how much longer it will grow stronger every day Oh, how much longer Dear archaeologists, today we're meeting one of the great photographers in rock and roll Aaron Rappaport. His illustrious career began working on sessions conjured up with James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, Cher, Kim Carnes, the Pointer Sisters, and oh, and so many more. Due to his professionalism, artistic eye, and sense of humour, his career exploded to capture amazing moments with the great artists in music. Get on the Googles and check out his stunning shot of Miles Davis and other legends. Aaron was a total gas to have in the studio. It is time for him to at last reveal some secrets. So, let's get to it, ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Rappaport. Welcome to the Art of Rock with Kosh and friends. I have a particular friend with me today, the great photographer Aaron Rappaport. And boy, are we going to have fun talking about some of the stuff that we got involved in. And here we go. Aaron, tell me something. Tell me how you got into this business. Tell me about our first gig when I first met you. Day one for me was as an assistant to a very well-known and established photographer, especially in the music business, named David Alexander. This was my, this was my first moment after school. Um, I left school early because I was kind of unhappy, and I, I, I noticed a, a, wanted, uh, a poster for an assistant wanted. I, I followed up with it, and he hired me. And 
it was it was my way out of school, which felt confining and and didn't seem like my path forward. It just it was a great school, Art Center College in Pasadena, and all the great ones went there. But I just it I wasn't happy there. I didn't feel like I was in the right place. As I walk up and knock on the door of David's studio, and who's there in front of me? James Taylor, who was my musical idol, and I mean. How can you not love James Taylor? Anyway, mm. I was just so thrilled. All of a sudden, I've gone from the sort of artificial academic world where I wasn't really making it that well anyway, and here I am in front of James Taylor. It was just an incredible moment for me because music runs pretty deep in my family. My dad was a musician. and Anyway, so we walk in the door, and there he is, and John Kosh, the art director famous to everyone i i was first of all thrilled to meet him and then we're and he says we're stuffing james into this plexiglass box they had constructed a, a, ple, a plexiglass box for the inner sleeve of the record the uh, jt J, jt yeah. record first of all how how it was designed who who set the thing it, it had to be specially designed so that when you when the camera saw the box, you didn't see any edges, so it was this strange shape with which had to be mathematically worked out. I don't know how they did it. Well, the, the box actually wasn't it wasn't exactly a cube with two ends missing because it was slightly funnel shaped. Okay, so we worked out yeah. that we could get him into it uh, because uh, we wanted him to be make a complete twelve inch square. So when you pulled him out of the sleeve, he was in the rec- the record was in there, and he was a complete twelve inch square. Uh, but the problem was that first of all, we could, we knew how to get him in, but my worry was how to get him out again because <laughs> he was actually cramped in this space. Oh, you know? cramped is not the word. No, I, that's true. Yes, I, he, I was amazed at how limber stand for a bit. <laughs> this guy was. Uh, uh, with, he was so limber. I mean, I just still can't understand how he. Twisted himself up. I well, guess he wasn't he... that. He wasn't that limber when he got out. Believe me. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> and it's all your fault because you stuffed him in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was a fast. It was his idea. It started off as an idea. Yeah. Yes, it yeah. was his idea. I'd like to be a perfect square inside the sleeve, and I right. said okay, um, and talked to David about constructing a box which Ron Larson could airbrush the edges out of if necessary. Right. Which which we did, so he would be, you know, a, per- a perfect square. And so, yeah, it was James started out with the idea and then left us um, to think about it. Right. You know, a bit like the stuff that we did later, which I'm jumping ahead, you know, when we did Dad Loves His Work and you had to make sparks and all that sort of stuff. He comes up with an idea, says sparks. Right. You know, this time he said he came up with an idea, I want to be in the sleeve. Yeah. And then left everyone else to work on it. Right. And that's why that's why a lot of these artists went to you because they they knew they could just express something. James was so special. He had this childlike genius. He would come up with the ideas or see something on the street and all he had to do was call you and you would make it work for him. It was well, just Well, yeah, this this I think the JT was 1977, I think. I guess uh, kind of blurry with dates, yeah. but um yeah, and I, um it wasn't the, I think it it wasn't the first time we worked with David, but David and I had, you know, sort of worked out that we could do this. Um, and we were a bit nervous about James turning up and actually doing it, even right. though, it, you know, it was initially his idea, I want to be a 12-inch square. Um, so we were a little bit worried, I must admit. Right. <laughs> but then we thought, okay, well, Aaron's here, he can do it. <laughs> but, but every time we worked with you, it was this amazing experience or this amazing set or it was just... it, it was, punctuated by these um, these artists with these ideas and you just made them come alive and in between that David was working with other people and they were a whole different set of amazing experiences John Belushi you know is being photographed for a magazine or something and someone says to him uh, that scene in Animal House where you down an entire fifth of whiskey that was bullshit right that was iced tea and he looks over and he says bullshit Somebody get me a bottle of Jack Daniels. So he gets a bottle of Jack Daniels, guzzles the whole thing just like an animal house, and passes out. I mean, that was one week, and then the next week we were doing Rod Stewart, and then with you, and it was just it was just this little Verrocchio studio where it was just amazing the amount of talent that went in and out of uh, David's place. It was a real there was a lot going on. Yeah, constantly, you know, because uh, you know, um, and that's where I, I I discovered the fact that you. 
uh, the at the time apparently humble assistant was actually carrying the load and a lot of loads yeah. and that's when all of a sudden uh, our other clients were coming through and whatever else and uh, uh, in time uh, you moved on and became um, the man you are today which is yeah. like possibly the premier photographer well, in rock and roll I, I can't uh, acknowledge enough the the atmosphere that made that possible in david's studio i wasn't the only one there were several other steve smith and mark hanover oh, and, and nels yeah, israelson and and kevin stapleton mm. all kinds of people came out of that little verrocchio studio where da vinci went as a boy and you know all kinds of other artists were were allowed to thrive and in a situation that was pretty unique because the photographer, David Alexander, kept saying, you know, I'm sick of this. I want to get out pretty yes, soon, pretty soon, pretty soon. It's going to be you guys someday. Mm. And, you know. No, he's in, very good like that. Yeah, and he's still kind of reclusive. It's difficult to get hold of David, but I can. Yeah. And I, yes. So we'll get him on the air one day. Yes. I'm sure you will. But yeah. the things that, uh, the possibilities that opened up that, that seemed like they were going to happen in that studio just just changed everybody's lives it was i should add that the studio was opposite capitol tower the capitol tower records right. uh, capitol records tower um yeah, on vine um right next door to the hollywood um palace palace yes, yeah that's right yeah that's right and that's just and the hollywood canteen where right. you'd walk in there and find mickey rooney or Cary grant or yeah. somebody like that sort of yeah yeah so it was like the whole hollywood thing was going on uh, remarkably sort of uh, breathtakingly. But anyway, so the point is, the other jobs that you did, I mean, apart from working with David and we did Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and whatever else, um, what I'd like to talk about is how we went on uh, when David, as you say, was getting a little bit sort of leery of working working and working. Um, and we went on to Linda Ronstadt. He was, I don't think he was leery of working. He just was the most rela- restless person I've ever known. Mm. Whatever he did, he put 100% into oh, it. Oh, yeah. And after the photography thing, he opened up a, a lab, a color processing oh, a and lab, I. which turned into the one of the biggest labs in the country. And, you know, he always had a, he always had some idea, and he was most comfortable when he was knocking heads with people. And, mm. you know, he was... Uh, oh, he was a sweet man. He didn't a, a knock genius, heads, really. combative... But it's funny you should say that. He knocked heads with, with uh, Irving Azoff <laughs> oh, on the yes. stage during an Eagles concert. Yes, that's true. I, I saw him about, knock totally heads. forgot about that. A yes. shouting match during a concert. <laughs> I, I saw a similar kind of uh, confrontation. David wasn't afraid to confront somebody. No, no. He would stare you straight in the eyes, too, which was very oh, unnerving. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He would stare at you like a pit bull. Another uh, angry conversation on the stage of uh, Winterland in San Francisco with Bill Graham. He just, you know, he just would just mm. fight his way in and. It was just uh, inspirational. So tell me how you got into photography, how you got your first camera, and how you got inspired to take off uh, with this amazing career. Well, two things were happening at once. My father was a musician, and I I grew up from day one hearing his music, kind of swing era, trumpet player kind of. So music was in my blood from the very beginning, long before photography. And then I hit about 13, and my uncle, this is all in suburban, white bread, San Francisco, um, California native, just, we were out in the suburbs, and uh, I wasn't a real sports jock, but music meant everything to me, which led me to you, essentially. And photography, when I was 13, my uncle gave me a camera, I looked through it and said, now here's something I think I could do and I would enjoy doing. So I... I started taking pictures and... Uh, what camera? Sorry, i got to interrupt. What camera? He gave me an old Mamiya. Oh, okay. Japanese. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, that just, you know, from then on, that's just what I wanted to do. So I went to uh, college in Pasadena and uh, learned the technical stuff. And it didn't get put together. The light bulbs didn't go on, really, until I, met, until I went to work for the photographer I'd mentioned who was in the primarily doing music stuff. So the music and the photography came together and um the egg definitely hatched because that's that's all I wanted to do and that's what made me feel alive and were you know I don't I don't think I would have uh, taken the same path if the music and the photography hadn't come together like that. So tell me how photography ties in with music for you. Well, you have to picture a a, a young person you know with headphones on or listening to a stereo the amount of hours that were spent staring at this 12-inch square, this holy piece of, of real estate that, was, that, that had this image on it that, that we just spent hours and hours. 
it was more than just looking at a photo. We would just we would be listening to the music, and this little square, this 12-inch square, was was it was like a church for us. And everybody has their favorite album cover from that period that they would just stare at for hours. And it meant so much. First of all, it meant so much that I was taking pictures that were ending up on these covers. But it, the medium was all about the music. In those days, the album covers were, were shot by many people and inspired by many different styles and things. But it, we all came together to stare at these album covers, which it was a holy space. And, and it just... It sang with the music, this this square with this this image on it, and um, for many years that's what we did. And and when I was younger, that's that's why I wanted to do album covers because this was just such a, a an important thing for me. And the day that the barcodes came along was the day that the music died in a lot of ways, because all of a sudden our holy square here didn't belong to us. It didn't belong to the music. It was it was being trampled on by this barcode and. <laughs> I know it sounds trivial, and and for many many years the barcodes were used, but but it's it, still on. But yeah. it was a big day when those things came around because, in a way, it was kind of the music dying, and it was something else being more important. And then further down the line, of course, CDs and and the record changed. But but that the hours we spent in front of these album covers were just, just staring at them and reading the liner notes. That was that was half the show. Yeah. That was just. Yeah. That was uh, a well, whole... yeah, the liner notes particularly because uh, you know because all the credits of the musicians could be read by the way as opposed to now where you need a sort of magnifying glass. But I, I, age, I bring it up and I keep <clears throat> yammering about it because I'm not so sure young people today can appreciate that. No, I, I'm sure they. Don't. I don't think they have the the uh, attention span or something that that. It was just a mind space, sort of a hypnotic thing that you would be listening to the music and staring at this you know powerful image, and. Uh, and yeah, it was just, just getting involved and immersed in the whole process. And I tell you, the one thing I really miss is standing on the press and watching 500,000 of these things coming off the press, you know, right. and the smell of the ink and the smell of the... The setup, sound of the printer. You know, and it's like 100,000 images coming yeah. out, you know, which we've created. That is really a big thrill. And all the printers and the processors and the dye transfer makers and oh, all the yeah. people that were so there's involved. another process that's gone, yeah. dye transfer. Yeah. No one does that anymore. No. And was it Ted Stadel was the... Uh, yeah. yeah, he was the great... Ted Stadel Cibachromes. Yes. Bob DeSantis and all these yeah. all these craftsmen that, yeah. that helped make this little 12-inch square just this beautiful thing that we would just stare at and tie mm. into the music and sort of go into a zone with. And, and, and there were great printers, too. I yeah. Because yeah, we'd go over to... Uh, uh, Queens Litho in sure. in New York, or they'd be coming out. AGI, of, yeah, AGI of Chicago, yeah, yeah. yeah, they were they were brilliant, and they were dedicated to uh, getting it right. Yeah, that was the point, you know. And some of the covers were <clears throat> illustrations, and some were photos, and some were restrained, and some were crazy, and some were, you know, it just uh, it was a yeah. wonderful venue that all different kinds of artists were involved with, and photographers especially. I want to talk about Hotel California. Um, and I know that we got the, you know, you're up on the cherry picker, I'm up on the cherry picker, Davey's on a cherry picker, and we have a we have a divergence of, of memories here because you are thinking it was shot at dawn and I'm thinking it shot at dusk and we've got to sort of hash that one out. I'm not sure if we can. It just seemed to me like <laughs> it had been shot a couple of times and uh, the time of day wasn't right or something, but... Well, we shot two other hotels as... Um, I, d- I wasn't you present for those, no. Okay, so what, what, what the backstory was that uh, for Irving and Glenn Fry and Henley, we shot three hotels to choose which one would work the best. And this one came shining through uh, because of the sunset. So did we? Sh- I don't think we shot Hotel Calif- the, the, the Beverly Hills Hotel more than once, did we? Because we were hanging over the, uh, hanging over the rush hour. And, and now I know why it's dusk. Because we're facing west, and there's the sun going down. Gotcha. <laughs> I remember. I, I, I remember the the parking lot being on the east side. But uh, I don't know. No, we're on we're okay. on Sunset Boulevard, and we're facing west, uh-huh. and the sun's okay. going down. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. No. But that's all right. We were all doing things. We in were shooting days. a whole lot of film. We were up in a oh cherry God, picker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was wobbling around. And someone had to keep feeding the meter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was probably Steve I was or amazed somebody. we got permission to do this. We didn't. We did. Oh, we. I thought we were in a cherry picker. Yes, but we got the cherry to... picker. We never got any other street permits. Oh, I thought, I, I seem to recall us being in the parking lot on their property. 
but uh, uh, on no no Hotel California. I mean, on the Beverly Hills Hotel yes. property. I don't remember that. Okay. I just remember choosing the slide. You know, getting there. But how, how and was, someone's feeding the. How could that have been possible with a cherry picker? That's a that's well. A we, big, we rent the cherry picker. And you I put know, it on I a mean, meter. This is Beverly and Hills. And you go up and it's sixty feet, which is an, you know <laughs> is totally exaggerated. But you know, as soon as you get up there, you want to pee because it's like you know. Oh, oh, oh. Um, yeah. Well, all I remember is that it was an unusual situation, uh, and and more common in those days that there would be two, three, four sessions for an album. Yes, the but, sleeve could be, de- you know. Oh yeah, definitely because we got to get into the Lido, the inside, yeah. and, and, and the back. And, and, and one of the biggest disappointments was that I didn't get to be on that shoot. Uh, the oh, one the Lido? inside the Lido, because oh. I was busy oh, I printing in David's darkroom a negative that was three stops overexposed for the JT cover. Oh no, my God! And and I was in there for like twenty four hours making these ten fifteen minute exposures to try to save that one. There was one image that James really liked that you really liked, and mm. uh, well, it was a contact sheet, right? It must have, yeah, seen, yeah, yeah. So the contact. Th- th- this is one of the stories that I wanted to get out because I was, I, you know, I would use to protect my clients by sort of telling fibs or exaggerating or changing stories and I didn't realize that you fuckers were doing the same to me <laughs> I didn't know that you were in the dark room all night trying covering to, for covering my ass yeah. and I'm covering yeah. James Taylor's ass yeah. so I thought that you know these are stories that you know I hope Jim gets to hear this because he would think that's very funny absolutely <laughs> there was always a sense of disharmony with them they never agreed no, there was a lot of I arguing know. it was a strange band well I mean Glenn and Henley were sort of like in control, you know. Don Felder, who's the sweetest man in the world, uh, was sort of kept a back seat. And Randy Meister, who we worked with, uh, who was also a very, very lovely man. Um, yeah, there is a, you know, but that, the, the glue was uh, Irving Azoff, you know. I guess so. Because when I first walked into um, their studio, not their studio, their management's office on Sunset, um, I, I was there to hear with David Alexander. Uh, the title track and it was like obvious that this was going to be a right. massive hit and everyone was waiting for this album and it's the second time I pulled this trick of not putting the name of the band on the cover because everyone knew you mean that, Abbey Road? yeah Abbey Road was the first time right. I, knew, I did that right. uh, but now for uh, Hotel California I did the same thing again it's the ah. biggest band in the world for Christ's sake if you don't know who they are and everyone's waiting for it to come out right. so uh, anyway that's that's, that's that's my end of the story yeah strange little threads run through the eagles and and our yeah. experience that uh, we ha- i had shot the uh cover for you of eagles live yes oh my god yes. which was a road case that we <clears throat> specially prepared which for we, the actual album cover yeah we had with a big 86 on it so right they, like they've been 86 yes um and yeah and i'm going to ask you this question no i know the answer what happened to the case Oh, the case I ended up taking home and served me well over about 10 years of being a photographer. I kept it stored in my studio, my, stu- my old studio on Beverly Boulevard in Los Angeles. And, one, and uh, on one occasion, the studio, which I rented frequently, was being rented by a photographer that, that was shooting the Eagles. And um, Glenn Fry was there. And in between takes, he was just walking around the back of the studio and happened to spy, I don't know, he has a real eagle eye, but happened to spy this case that was used for that album cover. And he uh, overpowered my assistants and said, this fucking belongs to us. This is our our case. I want this thing back. And he dragged it out of my studio, and uh, that was pretty strange. Yeah. Yeah, they say, Where's they, my case? I asked my assistant. Oh, no, Fry no, came in and, and took no, it, said God, it was, it was a I was repossessed. Yeah, yeah. 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 I had a little, my little joke on that was that the word Eagles is actually stolen from an Eagles uh, comic ah. in Britain. There was a comic called The Eagle, and I just used that lettering. So only, only people in Britain get the joke. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. We shot that on 8x10 film. Again. Uh, so yeah. this is 8x10 film, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lugging these things around. Inside Eagles Live, we have this poster with an aerial shot of a concert. And um, I just have no idea. I know Aaron took the picture. You took the picture, but I just don't know where it was. I don't remember where it was. We were traveling a lot, and and it was... But it's a poster that sort of came... It was quite huge. That doesn't doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. No. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, Henley was really thrilled with that picture because it was a bit like Trump. It showed how thousands of people have showed up for these concerts. Well, that's not fair to say because Henley actually was, even though Henley and I sort of fell out a little later over the the long run, uh, we've repaired that damage since oh, then. Yeah. Good. Yeah, right. At last. What was that for? Well, because um, 
Did David do the interior of The yeah. Long Run? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because right. uh, I wanted the interior of the album to be glossy. Oh. And I was going through my matte period, and I wanted the outside to be matte. And Henley decided that that's not going to happen, but it was too late because it was already on press. Right. Forty years later, um, I'm at the, uh, the Glenfly m- Memorial, and we decided it was time to shake hands and make up and hug and say that was silly shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I want to talk about you leaving David Alexander and going solo. Right. Because that's when all of a sudden you you grew massive wings and took off. And that, I think, is a story that everyone would like to hear. Uh, After I left David, that was, I think, 1978, um, I opened my own studio on Beverly Boulevard. And... um, I'm trying to. Do we shoot Ringo in my studio or David's? I think it was David's. David's studio. Yes. Yeah, that was. Yeah, we, smell the roses. Smell the roses. Right. Mm. I start. We started working together in his studio first before I got my own studio. And one of the projects we did was uh, Ringo Starr, "Stop and Smell the Roses." Mm. Um, there were several projects, but that one was was fascinating because Ringo is fascinating and. Well, he was a little bit—he was a little bit sad because he hadn't actually got a label at that point, or something was gone wrong, and he was a fucking beetle, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, he was fixated with the California Highway Patrol. Well, Hence I, the back where he's actually sort of. Uh, all I know is I got a phone call from you saying Ringo wants to get together and do a session for his new record, and he wants to. What we're doing is his reaction to to John's assassination. Right, and. And I figured, okay, that's what the roses are all about. And then you said, well, there's one other thing. He wants to dress up like a cop. Yes, right, which uh, we didn't understand. Which we didn't understand, but was mm. very cool. Mm. He he sold it, and we bought it. It was pretty fun. Yeah, it was, yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that, was, the, that was one of the, the pioneering thing that we did with that album, apart you know, was the fact it was the very first scratch and sniff album, at least anyway, the first right. one that I've ever done. So the roses, when he, un, when he undid the shrink wrap, you just saw overpowering stink of, yeah, stuff that made you sneeze would come out. So, uh, but what what label is that on? I think it's, I think that's on Atlantic now. I don't know where where we are. Is there a logo on Boardwalk the Records? Oh, Boardwalk. Okay, in nineteen eighty one. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, right. Okay. So we're moving into the eighties now. So we're moving into the eighties. I have my own studio. I'm starting to shoot a lot for Rolling Stone magazine. Tom Petty, Zevon, Miles, Temptations. A I lot didn't of know people. you did Warren Zevon. Didn't know that. Yeah, I did Warren. Z- spent a couple of days. It was with Excitable Warren Boy, or that was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, you did Excitable Boy. Not the album cover. I did oh. a lot for Rolling Stone. Oh, with okay, him. got it. I would yeah. spend a day with. But you're him. promoting it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he oh. was super fascinating character, uh, into Jack Kerouac and. Uh, mercenaries and drinking. Oh, I know, rolling the and, whatever it's the gunman or whatever it's called. I forgot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was he was like you know drinking six diet Pepsi's an hour, and he was just a pretty intense character. And uh, uh, but he was he was good friends with a lot of people, and he was a really interesting character. Well, yeah, I mean, look at his last album, The Wind, which right. I don't know who shot that, but uh, I don't know. Which is when he had lung cancer, and uh, everyone gathered round. Right. To, uh, you know, I think Henley was on there. But just everybody, there was yeah. anybody was on there. And it's an amazing album. It's heartrending, actually. Yeah. But, you know. Jackson Brown was a good friend of his. Yes, I, that's I, right. I think that he Well, did. they were coming out of the Peter Asher stable because Warren's even, I think, was managed by Peter Asher at the time. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think so. When Gloria Boyce, remember her? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I have a feeling that's where that was coming from at the time. Right. So we were continuing doing these fun projects with people like Earl Clue and... Oh, yes. Oh, we're out in the desert again. <laughs> right. Kim Carnes, Carla Bonoff. Who else did we do? Pointer Sisters. Uh, Walter Egan, I think we did. I don't think so. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. Cher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did Cher. Cher was probably the longest makeup and hair session oh, yeah, in the history of Josie, photography. Josie, whatever his name. Yeah, he was Josie Hebert. Ferrer or something like that. Yeah, whatever. The guy with the hat. Yeah, hat with the, with the, <laughs> the, the artificial hair hanging out the back. Yes, it wasn't really his hair. Um, yeah, that was like a three-hour makeup session, yes, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's when Cher showed me her secret tattoo, which uh-huh. we won't go into at the moment. Uh-huh. Um, and we turned it into an illustration right. at the front. Anyway, I can't remember what it was. It ended on up bank. on her ankle, right? Yes, for yes. The, I the moved album. it. Right. We moved her tattoo for the album cover. <laughs> We're not going there. Uh, but anyway, it was a fun. It was a fun. Actually, I got a, Cher was very nice to work with. Actually. Because I had to go and visit her many times. Sort of, you know, she was with Les. Oh God, the guitarist. What's his name? Dudek. Dudek. Yeah. 
Uh, and she was upset with me because I have an English accent and I kept calling in Les. <laughs> Les Dudek. But Les was in the band, her band, right? Black Rose. Yes, yes. He was the guitar player, yeah. Yeah. And that was a big, another big set we built, like Ario Speedwagon and, and uh, for High Infidelity and, and yeah. Yeah, right. We, we were into set. building sets at the point. Right. Yeah, they were like becoming, you know, uh, trademarks in some respects. Right. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Ario Speedwagon and High Infidelity. We can talk about that. Yeah, it's one of a series of stuff that we were, we were building all these sets. Sets, yeah. Yeah. One was for Rod Stewart, where we, we oh. were flooding a hotel room, and everything was timed and carefully planned, and tons of water, and, you know, firemen, and all this electricity, and Rod Stewart doesn't show up, which was very typical of in Rod. those days mm. of Rod. Mm. He was another one of these guys who felt like he had to be a bad boy just to be cool, and, uh, you know, gave me a hard time because I handed him a beer without a glass, and, you know... He was just very... Well, he wouldn't show up. Three times he didn't three show up. Three times he didn't show up. Up at yeah. his house with the swimming pool and the naked girls and the... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it, it, it was, it was all, he was a trial, you know. And you know, he'd all say, you've got 10 minutes. So what I would do is sneak into the changing room and I'd just get his very, very expensive Rolex watch and just turn it back 10 minutes <laughs> every 10 minutes, you know. Uh, then he'd come out and say, what's wrong with my watch? Um, but, the po- <laughs> but anyway, we flooded this hotel room. Um, which was very expensive. Another, very t- another big set. Yeah. Another big set, yeah. yeah, with neon lights flashing outside and all this sort of stuff. So, And he, the idea was he was wasted, lying on the bed, and his shoes are floating in the water, and steam's coming out of the bathroom because he'd left the shower on and things like this. And he'd approved the concept because we drew it. Then lost and, his nerve and didn't want to do it. No, he came in and said, no, I'll just have a picture of me, Ed. And that was it. Yeah. So we <laughs> I went have to, outside. I have to yeah. phone Mo Austin now, the head of Warner Brothers, and say, you just blew 40 grand. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of canceled photo sessions. Uh, we ended up walking around Mulholland Drive taking pictures of him. Yeah, which became Footloose and Fancy Free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, back to REO Speedwagon. Back to REO Speedwagon. So Kevin, I, actually, I like Kevin, actually. He was kind of cool at the time. I, because, you know, he'd let my son, who's like seven years old at the time, you know, sit on his drum kit and do things and play around in the studio and oh, whatever. Well, that's nice. Yeah, around on the Oak Street studio uh-huh. out in uh, Burbank. Hmm. Um, but anyway, I th- yeah. Uh, though he hasn't received, he hasn't returned my phone calls lately because I wanted to get him in. You know? I remember how hands-on he was about the choice of the model, and I remember him hitting oh. on her and just. Oh yeah, they were like I've boys. They were, that. they were like boys. They weren't interest, really that interesting, like other people we shot. But anyway, it well, was, it was yeah, it was. It they were selling in rock big, and roll big history. time selling records. Yeah, and that was the big the one. Cover. Yeah, the big one. Yeah, the cover's a good cover too, and that was a big, um, big seller for them because the first one was like how to tune a fish. Was that which? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, we were sitting in the very studio. This was recorded in, by the way. No yeah, kidding, yeah, wow. yeah. I'd like to talk a little more about the sets we built, sets that you and I worked on together, but you were the sort of uh, the mastermind behind them. Uh, one is uh, Carla Bonoff, um, and uh, the Restless Nights, I'm not sure of the date of that thing, where we, she was in a, 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 a railroad compartment, um, and there's like a station behind her, and there's steam coming out of places. And uh, she's Yeah, there, looked- was a, there was a uh, prop and uh, set uh, rental uh, service that was on the lot of MGM and we would oh, go that, over there yeah. we would go over there and pick these gems I mean we're talking about set pieces that were used in uh, Gone with the Wind yeah, and right. <laughs> we had such access all the all those days yes, just that right. whole process the artist would express themselves you would create this <clears throat> idea for the set and we'd go we, we all the things that we were able to do which were so personalized to the to the artists. I mean, from James Taylor walking down a Manhattan street, seeing a city worker sawing on a pipe, which is creating all these sparks. And he would, you know, in his childlike genius, call you up and say, hey, I want to recreate this thing. I got the, he would go to the worker and ask them the, what kind of saw is that Mm. that you're using? Mm. Because I want to use it on my next cover. And he would get the serial number and the model and the make and call you and then you'd call me. But then you'd have to sort of find pipes to see which made the best sparks. Well, that was the easy part. Oh, was it the oh, fun the, part? Because oh, <laughs> I remember this like looked very dangerous, and that's why he had to wear goggles. Because it this all started to look very sort of like we're going to burn James Taylor sure. if we're not careful. You know. But <laughs> so. I was methodical, and I you know I would make it work till it worked. And the incredible thing was how how these ideas were allowed to come to life. We were at a time we were working at a time when 
someone could just say something and we could just make this thing well, happen. And, when it comes to James and his sparks, that was Dad Loves His Work, which we actually, because he on, on the front cover, he's, uh, uh, no, it's not there. It's on the back cover somewhere. He has his lunch pail. He has so, his lunch pail. It was we about used, Dad Loves His Work. Yeah, but, but we used to call it Dad Loves His Lunch. It was more than that. It was about, <laughs> it was a statement like Ringo's cover was a statement about how tragic he felt about John Lennon's right. assassination. In a sense, it, it was a similar thing with James Taylor and Dad Loves His Work because we were he was he had just experienced a breakup with Carly Simon. Yeah. In fact, the one shoot that I that I shot that I never shot, which was one of my biggest regrets, was we were going to go to Martha's Vineyard and shoot Carly and James and do the family thing and do all these amazing pictures <clears throat> and and. I remember, for some reason, being with you at Peter Asher's studio when James was having a knockdown, drag-out phone conversation with her. Boom, the, that situation ended. Their marriage ended. And I think Dad Loves His Work was sort of a— But I'd already scouted months. Oh, had you? Okay. Yes, I'd already been out there. But it yeah. didn't happen. That was No, that was, it never happened, you know, and it was, you know, falling apart. And uh, but, I, the, but this was sort of a statement to his kids. Yes. Why he's not around a lot. And mm. I think he felt kind of bad and— uh, that's kind of one of the one of the untold yeah. stories about yeah. the origins of that. It's a nice photograph, though, isn't it? And he was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think it was a particularly nice time. No, it James. wasn't. No, no, because it was also the, the album Flag, you know, which I think Mark Hanauer yes. shot. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's when he was really down, and yeah. you know, it was. Uh, but uh, I, I can't stress enough how an artist, uh, artists of this caliber, could come up with an idea and know that they could call you and it would happen. It would be made to happen. And and the relationship between you and the artists just allowed all of these incredible things to happen. They trusted you. Well, they, that's the whole point. And you have knew, to have trust. They didn't know? trust, and they hated their their counterparts at the record companies. No, the art departments were always they like— They hated yeah, those people, yeah. and they knew if they came to you that you know they would be treated well. Well, I, I became a bridge— you know, like with, with Dan Fogelberg, who Columbia, CBS at the time, you know, couldn't speak to him and he wouldn't speak to them, right. you know, and he he was he would be late uh, on delivering his, his masters and I would take it in the shorts for him by saying the art wasn't ready, even though it had been ready for weeks, you know, right. and stuff like that, which is how we managed to keep going for so yeah. many years. But getting back to the set thing, because I really want to... The set thing, we're back to the set. Kim, I want to talk about Kim Kim Carnes, a set, a beautiful set that John designed... Uh, Inspired by Fritz Lang, Metropolis, yes, the, exactly. the 20s. Uh, I was in my sort of, uh, yeah. Edgy, black and yeah. white kind of thing. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a huge set, but it had to be built with a forced perspective. And and what what that meant was I was stuck on the ground for this entire session looking up. Up her skirt, actually. Up her yes. <laughs> skirt. And it's a short skirt. I don't know. I, I seem to recall a lot of problems with her in the jacket or something. I yeah, don't... we had. Yeah, there were a lot of problems with it. And the, the, as far as I remember, we had to have the camera kind of locked down. Yeah. Because being false perspective, if the camera strayed left or right, you're going to see how all the gaffer tape that held the set right. together. I don't know, think so. I said more than three words to her. I was probably around her for 14 hours. She was kind of reclusive, and and I don't. I'm not sure it was a particularly good time for her, but. I don't know. I mean, uh, it turned out to be one of the most splendid pieces of work we've ever yeah. done. Look at it. Yeah. I'm looking. Well, the the audience can't see it at the moment, but they're going to go online and find it. I hope. And, uh, yeah, Voyeur. That's the name of the title of the album. Yeah, um, and uh, I'm not sure of the date. Great but, artist. She was yeah. a terrific artist. Oh yeah, she had a wonderful voice. Yeah. I actually suggested to Val Garay, the producer, that they should team up with Rod Stewart. Both these had these gravelly voices. Right. It never happened, of course. You know. Cause, I think Rod would feel sort of uh, out of it somehow. I think it was 1982. Or was it 87? I can't remember. I mean, that, the, the, those guys, you 82. know, the Val Gares and the Richard yeah, Perrys. <laughs> and, I mean, that's a whole other breed of, of uh, producers Yeah, producers Why? that yeah. were just, you know, found it easy to deal with you. And, and, you know, you made it work with them. They were difficult personalities. Oh, they were very difficult. Richard Perry was particularly difficult. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't, don't want to say he was a psycho, but, you know. <laughs> He was. He was a, he was a vegetarian. <laughs> Peter Asher was an amazing character. Absolutely not a psycho. But oh no, no, no! Peter Asher was this wonderful, totally genius focused. guy. Yeah, yeah, and these were yeah, these were the creme de la creme of the producers at the time. And what is more, they were turning out hits, and they yeah. were you know very very successful. And um, Negocio and Peter Asher was negotiating uh, contracts for their artists and things like this, mm-hmm. which were like uh, unbelievably sort of. Uh, generous is not the word I'm looking for, but unbelievably amazing. 
Yes. So those sets were were a lot of fun. Yeah, and we had the budgets in those days. You know, that was the that was the thing because Kim Carnes had just come off um, Betty Davis' eyes, so she had a she had a good budget. Right. And we could burn that budget, you know. I mean, everything. Not that we made that much money for ourselves. No, I note, not no. at all. But it seemed to go somewhere else. Didn't everything it? from the plexiglass box to the <laughs> hand design props to to my to the studio, which we had to hand paint, complete with graffiti and signs backwards because you wanted the. Oh, Randy Meisner, we're talking. We had about. to flip yeah. the negative. One more song, yes, right? That was Randy yeah. Meisner's record. We had to flip the negative, so all. Because to to conform to the design you wanted, left or right. Well, I wanted him on the front cover, ah. and because um, it's what covers are for, and um, the 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 graffiti, which was wonderful, you know, was all on a, in the wrong place. And so it was we, done backwards. And you it was had, done backwards. So we had to repaint the whole graffiti backwards, right? Like in the mirror, so we could get him on the front cover, and the graffiti looked like it was real, and that was a. Uh, uh, God, that was a that was a tough one to do, wasn't it? I seem to remember. Yes. Yeah, that was after he left the Eagles, right? Yes, after. yes, because yeah. they, they acrimoniously, I might very acrimonious. I mean, there was so much acrimony. And he was one of the original members. That's so awful that this would happen. Yeah. You know, I just remember a lot of disharmony with that particular band. But I guess that's kind of typical with bands. Uh, I remember the same sort of thing with Tom Petty. There was some problems inside that band, also. Oh, I don't remember that bit. Yeah. Yeah, but I know the. I was very disappointed when um, uh, the Eagles took, uh, went to the uh, Kennedy Awards and Randy Meisner wasn't. Well, I knew Randy was sick actually, oh. um, but uh, it was just like it's kind of weird in a way that um, nothing beat the sound of Randy Meisner's soprano. Oh voice my God! Standing on 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 the stage at Red Rocks in Colorado with the hot wind blowing and the Eagles playing and take the it end to of the, the limit. T- yes, the end of the summer. Nothing <laughs> was as moving, and you wouldn't ex- really know that from just listening to the record. Nothing was as moving as seeing them on the stage, and I had the good fortune to be able to shoot a lot of those. A lot of them were for you. A lot of those live shows where I oh okay I appreciate that's what. The Rolling Stones are about, you know. Mm. I, I wasn't a big fan until I saw them perform. And, oh, uh, when the Stones a- perform, you got yeah. something. Boy. Aerosmith was the same way, uh, yeah. along with the Stones and James Tate and um, uh, Jackson Brown and, and just the Eagles and uh, some of my experiences with Southern rock, like with uh, Leonard Skinner and yeah. Black Oak, Arkansas, and Marshall Tucker. I didn't really care about Southern rock till I actually saw them perform and, and traveled around and. When I was with David, we shot uh, several of those bands, and and well, were you on the Marshall Tucker set uh, in Malibu um, Ranch mm-hmm. when they were? Mm-hmm. We had the the horses and the no, stagecoach no. and stuff. No, I wasn't on that. Just I was a total disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I shot them live. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, they were an incredible band. We have all had sort of pivotal moments, and sometimes quite harrowing. And there's a couple I want to sort of drag out of you now, uh, and the first one's Leonard Skinner. Leonard Skinner was, uh, the the title of the album was Street Survivors, and that was one of the higher budget album covers. We shot, it was for MCA Records, so we had access to the Universal Studios backlot, and the idea was with Street Survivors that the city was burning down behind them. So in the the burning down part, we weren't doing digitally, We we weren't using special effects. We actually brought the fire in in those days. So we had special effects people come in and, and, uh, put fire gas lines everywhere so that the band could be standing in the center of the street with the flames going. And I mean, it was all done safely and above board and to code and all that, but the entire street, we waited till night, was was pumped with gas, ready to light. The band we waited for, they were a little late, they showed up and they loved the set and they all lined up in the street and uh, we wanted to take a few test shots. So they're in the middle of the street and um, they turned the gas on and the whole place lit up. It was it was like a fiery inferno. It looked incredible. It was hot. It was everything they wanted. But something happened when they fired the gas up. The uh, one of the band members was deeply disturbed by the presence of the fire, and it, and it went far beyond just being afraid to get burned. Because these guys, I gotta say, in these southern rock bands, and especially Leonard Skinner, were afraid of nothing. They were bar fighting, tough guys, and. A little fire wasn't going to scare anybody, but the lead guitar player, I think his name was Steve Gaines, was deeply disturbed and and had a premonition and walked off the set. The photographer who I was working for, I don't remember him shooting more than 18 or 20 frames of film. And um, 
everybody said, what's wrong? Uh, Steve had a premonition. He said, this isn't right. Something isn't right. Something's going to happen. And that was it. This whole $50,000 photo shoot came down to about five or six frames, which the photographer actually got. And then they walked off and he was upset and had this premonition. And it was just the spookiest moment. I don't even think the photographer was aware of it, but that was it. And, um, it was a beautiful cover, and, and unfortunately, the record company, um, because they met a tragic end in a fiery airplane crash, had them had them retouch all the uh, flames out of the album cover. So very few people actually see the, uh, the actual photo with the flames. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I was working at the time, I was working on the tour program, and I, the tour program book. Uh, I had a photograph of the band lined up in front of the plane. Ah, the plane. The plane that ultimately killed them two or three days later, uh, or whenever it was. But the management was so upset with me because they accused me of jinxing the band. And all I had done was say, this is a great photograph. Let's put this on the front and use their logo on the top. They were pretty upset about the flames, too. Yeah, so that was like it was a horrible sort of nightmare of a sort of situation because I just... I don't know why one you, know, you kind of assume guilt when you haven't got any guilt at all. You know, it just becomes like what. But but on that set, those chills just went up and down my yeah. spine when he had that premonition. And sure enough, a few days later, we got the word that the plane had crashed. Yes, it was a few days later, wasn't it? It yeah. was just like yeah, the yeah. plane mechanical Tragic. failure or something. Yeah, and he went down in flames. And uh, it's a story that I, I, you just had to drag out of me because I just kind of gets gets me the shivers now to talk about it. It was disturbing. I, I was on the set of uh, the movie The Crow, Brandon Lee's last movie. And uh, I had a similar kind of chill up the spine kind of feeling on that set, which was in the middle of the night and everything was painted black. And Brandon asked uh, the animal trainer if uh, he could send the uh, pet crow onto my shoulder. So I'm standing there and I'm just getting this weird feeling. And the, all of a sudden the crow lands on my shoulder. And it was just a, everybody was overworked and it was there was a lot of things going on. But I got that strange feeling that something was going to happen. And sure enough, about a week later... That situation ended in tragedy. So, anyway, enough tragedy. Enough tragedy. We had we had so much joy. Yes, we did. But I think the the joy and the fun and the hard work. And as I keep stressing, it was a lot of hard work. But boy, was it worthwhile! You know, it was oh, yeah. great, wasn't it? Just, the best right. days. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about Rolling Stone covers. Rolling Stone covers. I did several Rolling Stone covers. Uh, there was uh, James Taylor. I did, and I did. Uh, Return of the Jedi on the beach with Princess Leia. Wow. And, uh, and all the characters. Um, My I, God, that must have been, yeah. I guess it was the first movie. I, I didn't know who Chewbacca was, but it was fun. And, <laughs> and you know, the, the six-foot-six guy inside the suit was a nice guy. And, and here was Carrie Fisher. And one of the most incredible people I've ever met. Intense and creative. And we ended up, we were in Northern California at the beach, at Stinson Beach. And, you know... The water's 45 degrees, and she has this great idea. Hey, how about I put on my bikini and jump in the water for you? I mean, how many opportunities does a photographer get like that? <laughs> and uh, Very few, I would think. Yeah, yes. and, and it was just incredible. You know, pe- There was a whole beach full of people, but it was before the movie came out, so nobody really even was around. Oh, I didn't realize It didn't really attract that much attention. Uh-huh. You know, my dad was there because he lived in Northern California, and he didn't care, but it was so fun. It was just really a fun shoot. Well, and, I didn't know. Uh, that. I didn't know you did that. I did Bruce Springsteen now, yes. uh, as a Rolling Stone cover, and I did uh, the Australian band. They flew me for six hours, or to spend six hours in Australia, to shoot uh, Men at Work and um, what other covers did I oh, do? You, oh, you actually, oh, you did that in Australia. Yeah, oh, I, I did that, that in Australia. Yeah. And those were the Rolling Stone covers and Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Yeah. And um, the more fun shoots, though, for Rolling Stone were were ones like going to. Miles Davis's house to shoot a quick portrait of him mm. for the Rolling ah, Stone cover. I want to talk to you about so that. So we go yeah. to, we go, I drive up to his mm. house, which is on the uh, county line up there in Malibu, and I knock on his door, and, and it was a story that was supposed to take place sort of miles at home, and, and we were supposed to go in his kitchen and sort of shoot, you know, him inside the house. And uh, I knock on the door, the door opens, and just as a dish is being thrown from the kitchen <laughs> at, at Miles, which narrowly missed him and shattered on the door, and he turns around to, the, to me and says, hey, I'm sorry, man, we're not going to be able to do this in the house. 
my old lady's really mad at me today. And so the, <laughs> the screaming and the, and the dishes being thrown, oh my God. everything continued. And he says, if you want to do this, you're going to have to go in the backyard. So we set up in his backyard and shot some pretty amazing portraits. Of yeah, him. I've seen the portraits, yes. Wow. But uh, the presence at that moment in the middle of the afternoon when that face, that, that, that incredible face opens the door and his eyes look at you, it was just, that was a pretty magic experience. And that's really why, that's really what sustained me as a photographer. That's why I wanted to do this whole thing is because although I'm not the social guy who wants to go have a beer, I'm not going to say, oh yeah, we had beers after the shoot. I love taking away a little slice of a, of a character. And we were lucky enough to see so many incredible characters. And I'd have to say Miles was right up there at the top. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, that, w- that was the fuel that really fed my soul. And I got to just have incredible fun with them. But I'm going to talk about some other person I thought was a magical person, and that's Lily Tomlin. Absolutely a magical person. Look at the stuff we did with that, you know, because, you know, when she was the the water bottle boy or whatever it was. And, of course, I've forgotten her character name now. Yes. Well, she and I are at the electric piano doing our nightclub act. Well, obviously, I just moved in to do it. but um, I don't know why. And the bag lady. Remember the bag lady? Sure. I remember all these characters – I seem to recall you saying that we were doing them so she could practice the character, so she could well, and experience she was, the character. Well, and do a book as well. The oh, whole it point was, was a book. book. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But she ended up clamming up about oh, all the, the pictures. I don't want anything used. No, it, it, yeah, it all got, got weirdly weird. And then um, a few years ago, I was backstage at a, in a 90-seat theater, and I bumped into her. And it was like, oh, boy, this is so lovely. But she was fine. And I didn't. I never broached the subject as to what happened to all those beautiful pictures because they were great. Right. Some, one of which you see is in my studio, which sure. I treasure. You know, but so. that slice of her character is something that's always stayed with me because she yeah. was so committed and so intelligent and mm. so soulful. And they don't even always like you. You know, they're just. You know, she was just. I, I was allowed to observe her and spend some time with her. We got some great photos. Oh, we got some fabulous. Sure, wish pictures. I could use them. Yeah, do you still have them? Though, right? I still so have I everything, them, but I? I would never use them. They, they... No, you can't. No, 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 no. no. They, it's like all the pictures of Linda Ronstadt, which I'm not allowed to use right. because I wouldn't even think of using them. You, you have to respect have to them. them. Yeah, but coming to Linda Ronstadt, get closer, which I think is another masterpiece that we created. Yeah, and a groundbreaking uh, technique for the cover with the yes, foil uh, the printing. Fo- the foil graffiti printing, um, and there's a lot of work got into that with Ron Larson again, of course. It had a very postery look, which yeah. which I think you used or you, you steered it in that direction because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but she was kind of sensitive about her weight then. Yes, yeah. So you wanted but to... But she wasn't overweight. I mean... I didn't think she was overweight no, either. No, 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 no. no, no, but, no. Uh, um, but she was thinking about it. But uh, So we sort of... Came, the, the concept with the polka dots, uh, I think we started off with the polka dot wallpaper didn't we then sort of worked out what yeah. we we're going to do with it i don't yeah. know how we, which way around it was but she was pretty insecure also and she trusted you and yeah. and and another deep person you know another very deep oh person. yeah and still um we still talk yeah i love her so much i i want to get i know he's kind of sort of diverged a bit but i want to get back into rolling stone covers and things like this particularly tin machine and tin machine wasn't a cover but it was another one of these really great relatively fast shoots for Rolling Stone that was used inside the magazine. And I was just absolutely thrilled to be shooting David Bowie. And we got some pretty amazing images. The only thing was I wanted to shoot him by himself. And he pulled me aside and said, you know, this is something that I feel pretty strongly about, Aaron. Um, I I don't want to be shot individually. This is, I am wholeheartedly 100% committed to this band. And I don't want to publicize in any way myself in a solo basis. and, And I'll give you what you want. And, you know, he was really uh, was an cool. incredible guy, yeah. hardworking, and just a another deep, super soulful person. Oh, that's a great story. I didn't realize that. Uh, you know, one assumes that someone like Bowie would have some sort of ego. That uh, no, no, it's in, no, that's, that's he didn't. Really Same with Warren Zevon. <laughs> oh, Warren who Zivon, we spent a couple yeah. of days with, and and was just really an incredible human being, and. Uh, Oh, especially Tom Waits, who we did a couple sessions with, who was another zero ego, I'll do anything, let's give it a try, and just soulful. I mean, performing for the camera, he was just... Was he, he, was he on the keyboards when he was Absolutely. Oh, yeah. wow. And we experienced that with James Taylor and so many others. Yes, yeah, true. I remember James picking the guitar up during a session and saying, do you mind if I play for a moment? Mm. You know, I mean, it's... But do you remember James Taylor picking up the tuba? Yes. Because he was a yes. red calendar. Right. I don't know why he was there, had left his tuba in the corner. Yes. And James gets up. He's never played a tuba before in his life. Right. And he plays it. Yeah. He's one of these 
people, just brilliant. He'd just play anything. Yes. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he didn't play it brilliantly, but he certainly would do better than I could. Yes. Absolutely. Tom Tom Waits was like that, too. I shot Johnny Rotten once oh, he uh, did? for Rolling Stone. Oh, yeah. 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 He was he was, right? He was a rude boy. Not bad, but that's yeah. his stick, wasn't it? Not real, yeah, not real cooperative, yeah. Yeah, that's like you know, Sid Vicious and you know, yeah. <laughs> Johnny Rotten. They, were, they had a reputation to keep up. Right. Like the early Rolling Stones, which, you know, now they've all mellowed out. But still, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's how you sell records at the time. Well, at least that's how he upset your parents. To buy, so they, you know. Yep. That, that and sex and drugs. Sex and drugs, yes. <laughs> um, but there were many more people I shot for Rolling Stone, ah. from Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. Uh, oh, you're into heavy metal now. Van Halen, that was another crazy set. Yeah. Uh, Van Halen's 5150 album cover. Mm. I don't know why, but in my mind, I always thought you were the art director. No, I, I didn't guess not. do that one. No. Um, they had a big concept where they built uh, a, this big chrome ball, and they had a, a muscle a weight lifter guy on the cover, didn't they didn't want to be on the that cover? That kind of sounds like the Doors, uh, one of the Doors covers. I don't know, but yeah. uh, you know, they were. But they I were, wasn't involved. I, no. I would have remembered that. I'm sure. Yes. And they spent. They were at the shoot. <clears throat> they were going to be in the back cover. The front cover was this bodybuilder guy, and they gave him a really hard time. He, he was gay, a gay bodybuilder, <laughs> who he had. We had to oil him up for the. And I was just I, the only reason I mentioned that was because it, it, it was pretty cruel. And I thought, I, I, I didn't. I didn't really like. The way that went, but anyway, they no, could that's... they could really be. The next day, I'm going up to San Francisco for a shoot for Rolling Stone, and uh, the band had Van Halen had played that night in L.A. They were headed back up to Northern California, where they're from, and Eddie Van Halen was right in front of me. I had just shot him; he didn't even recognize me. And we're going through security, and uh, all of a sudden, beep 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 beep, the metal detector goes off, and uh, the officer, security officers, officer says. Do you have any metal on you? He says, no, we're going to have to go into your car- package, uh, cartons of uh, Marlboro cigarettes, sir. They go in it and find a loaded thirty eight revolver. And <gasps> oh, my God. I don't know how he got out of it. But anyway, I diverge into that story. Wow, yeah. I thought it was going to be this sort of spinal tap with the sort of cucumber and foil written down the trouser leg. Uh, and that was another one of my shoots. <laughs> yes, exactly. Spinal tap. Yes, yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Again, like uh, I don't know how I managed to do that, but I did. Yes. Like the Jedi, this was a uh, this was a movie I hadn't seen, and it was about to become iconic. And uh, uh, I was called to shoot a sort of a, a campy movie poster. I forgot. I went through a whole ten year chapter doing movie posters, and uh, so anyway, they all they all came and did these fun pictures, and I didn't think much about it till I saw the movie and was amazed at how great it was. Oh, it's a fabulous movie. Yeah. yeah. It was the first time I had Were met... they in character when you... Absolutely. Yeah, this drove, drove me yeah. crazy, because yeah. I'd have to talk to them, and they were pissed off at me, because they thought I was taking the piss out of their accents, not realizing that my <laughs> accent was real. So, uh, yeah, if they're in character... You, Very you... small, low-budget film, and yeah. these guys, you could just tell that whatever they were doing, they had it down, and, and just these incredible... Harry Shearer, Michael McKeon, they were just... Incredibly funny. Oh yeah, they didn't stop. They were never off. You know, right. They were always on. Yeah, right. That's the word. And I shot them, and then I shot them later for Rolling Stone. Christopher <laughs> Guest was amazingly hilarious. We shot him for uh, the po- Final Tap poster, and then later on, I shot him for Rolling Stone. And after she had seen the po- uh, the photos, Jamie Lee Curtis called my studio, who I had shot, and said, "You know, can I? Can you give me his manager's name?" I need to get a hold of him because I, I'm I, I cannot stop after seeing your photos I can't stop thinking about him, and uh, lo and behold, wow they get married good God yeah and you're the matchmaker <laughs> did you go to the wedding I did not go to the wedding no again I I never socialize with these people I don't I don't want to pretend like I was friends but I get these little telepathic slices of their personality and their character mm. which is sort of the food that I've grown on ever since I was. Ever since you got your first camera. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. And I, I was lucky enough that it started with music, and you know, then it went from, like I said, magazines to uh, album covers to movie ads. and. So it's been a really fulfilling life. Yes, yes. thanks to you. Um, well, that's too much to say. You know, every time we meet in Gilson's and we hug, <laughs> you know, and embarrass everybody. So after the Rolling Stones episode, where did you go from there? Because at this point, our careers had parted. Sure. And we were, I don't know what the hell I was doing, but you were doing... I shifted more into movie posters. Right. Um, we did a lot of uh, fun projects, starting with Spinal Tap. I did Terminator 2 with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Steel Magnolias, uh, Lethal Weapon 2. I actually did the 
session for The Crow, the movie The Crow, with Brandon Lee. Brandon Lee. Brandon Lee? Brandon Lee, yeah. Swing Shift with uh, Goldie Hawn, Romancing the Stone, Passenger 57, Demo Man. I did a lot of movie posters for a while. So you don't fuck all by the sound of it. Well, the money was better. Ah, that's what better I wanted, than the music business. Oh, that's what I wanted to know because yeah. uh, we burned a lot of money out of the in the music business with right. our budgets, but we never actually sort of ended up with our fleet of BMWs. Right. <laughs> it was like. And during that period of the music business, they started doing these buyouts where the photographer would have to. Oh right. Yeah. Anyway, we started did you ever making, sign any contracts? Because I we be, we rarely signed. Contracts. I've never signed a contract. I signed yeah. a contract for Super Tramp Breakfast in America. Oh, you did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, because I always managed to avoid that, which means, you know, uh, mainly because it, 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 it's Wednesday and they need right. an album cover on Thursday right. and then the legal department couldn't get it together, and for which I'm grateful to because, uh, you know, it would have been just tied things up. Yes. And so, But, yeah, the money, it all depends, you know, because the Eagles' budget was fantastic because they were the Eagles, you know. But other smaller things, like I don't know how we scraped together Carla Bonoff, which is a beautiful set, yeah. you know. Probably we did On a budget. Make, on a budget. Yeah, well, yeah, but the budget was tight. And I, we probably yeah. took home 30 bucks a pop on that one. Right. You know? I can't imagine us rolling in dough. We actually <laughs> didn't build that many sets for, in the movie work I did, but uh, because by that time things were being digitally uh, enhanced and they were taking a lot of stuff from right out of the movie. But I did have a chance to have some good sessions with uh, people like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Goldie Hawn and Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner. That was uh, that was in the progression of chapters of the career that that were very fun. You must have drawers for the pictures, and uh, well, you keep threatening me Polaroid with Polaroids from the old days that you're yeah. going to bring out, but you never have. I know. I, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid of seeing pictures of myself well, way we all, younger. We, and, we both had hair. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, and my beard was black. Yes. Our little frisky Polaroids that we would do with the artists. Yes, right. Yeah, some of those. I'm afraid of looking back. No, you know, no, that, I that's gotta, what keeps I, me going. Yeah, I look forward. Oh, I want to look back. Oh, we're going to look back. I want to see. There'll be plenty they, of time to look back. Yeah, because the things will, you know, we had such fun. And it was hard work, but, you know, um, we did enjoy ourselves. Otherwise, yes. we wouldn't be doing it. So what are you doing now, Aaron? What's going on? Now I'm a jack-of-all-traits in terms of styles, which has kind of always suited me. I do a lot of lifestyle for companies, and I do uh, pictures on the set of commercials that are going to be used for advertising. And my flexibility and the variety of styles that I built over the years has really uh, – and, and the reluctance to get into one particular style – and the experience with all the personalities has just allowed me to to just make every day different, which is really kind of what I like anyway. I can it can be an advertising job or a book cover or a, anything, even pro Sounds bono to work. Sounds me like charities. you may have matured now. Oh no, slow down. <laughs> no, no, but... no, no, slow down. I know that feeling, but anyway, the point is, I we only Aaron and I rarely bump into each other which is why it's such a joy to be here. Um, we bump into each other at the supermarket now and again. As I said earlier, we embarrass each other. Um, but anyway, I want to thank you, Aaron, for coming by. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, enjoy. This is wonderful. I enjoyed every moment of this, and I have to thank you very, very much for thank you. getting this shit together and for all the work you've done in the past. Because, you know, you just uh, you rescued me many times. You carried the load, and I'm very, very Total joy. Great for that. Yeah, well, that's the whole point. It's got to be fun. Taking it all with me when I go. Yeah, yeah right. God, no, please. Yes. Yeah, I'll take it with me when I got my walker. <laughs> all right, I'm signing off. Thank you very much, mate. Always good. Thank you. Lovely. That was Aaron Rappaport, one of the greatest names in rock photography. Always one to take risks and push the proverbial envelope and deliver that all-important, exquisite image. One day, we will dig out more stories hitherto untold. 
Okay, a quick plug before I go. I am online at koshdesign.blogspot.com and you can find me on Facebook at Kosh Art. So that's me. I'm Kosh and this has been Art of Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Thank you for stopping by and we hope to see you next time. Cheers. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Art of Rock is written by Kosh and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.